I'm Jessica Dorr, and you're listening to The Offering for August 13th, 2022. In last week's Offering, I revisited a story I'd read several years ago in Clarissa Pinkola Estes' Women Who Run With the Wolves. A woman is killed by her father, thrown into the sea where she becomes a skeleton woman. Later, caught in a fisherman's net and receiving care from him, she finds his warmth hard to trust. There's a particular scene in the story where the fisherman is untangling her bones from his net gently and meticulously. As he does this, she's sitting there silently. She's concerned, and rightfully so, I'd say, about what secrets might seep from her body if she doesn't stand guard, hitching a ride on a sigh, perhaps, or a facial expression. Given what she's been through, she's afraid that if she were to speak, her own essence could be seen and used against her taken as yet another invitation for rejection and abuse, as it had been years ago with her father. You may know, as I do, how common an experience that is, of having been hurt in the past and finding it hard to trust warmth later on. I don't remember being particularly bothered by or even curious about this detail in the story the first time I read it. I guess then I wasn't ready, and I am now. Images are patient and tend to give a lot when we're patient with them, too. I've had social anxiety and other intimacy issues a lot of my life. I know that feeling of being stone still and silent when there's more happening behind my eyeballs and ribcage than I know how to translate. As some of you know, my ultimate dream is to be an old woman with the right tail for every occasion, and I definitely wonder if that comes from having spent so many years feeling like the person who's always doing or saying the wrong thing at the wrong time at parties. Either way, There's a belief somewhere in there that not being liked is dangerous, that what had happened to Skeleton Woman, for having, in Estée's words, done something of which her father disapproved, although no one any longer remembered what it was, could happen to me if I'm not careful, that I could be dragged to the cliffs and thrown out to sea and then eaten, eyeballs first by fish, one bite at a time. One of the problems with being punished or harmed for sins no one can remember or even confirm really happened is that when there's no real feedback about what you did that was so wrong, that wrong has nowhere to go but deep down into your cells. It gets woven into the fabric of your very being, and that's what we later come to know and refer to as shame. What many of us understand as the self, then, a core essential identity, becomes contaminated in a way by the violence imposed upon it, laced with an understanding that the self, if not kept under lock and key, is not safe to let out, as if the self were a rabid animal. Self-domination, or this need to keep oneself under control, is a disturbing thing to think about because of how it can bloom in the wake of interpersonal violence, but also because of its roots in systemic violence. I think one of the reasons systemic violence is so hard to reckon with is that once you see it, you can't unsee it, but it's so pervasive that if you're hoping to do something that resembles healing, it's really hard to know where to start. And then a lot of therapists aren't trained to be with the trouble of these questions either, and being environmentally entangled humans, as we all are, are also so entrenched that the therapeutic relationship can be a site where violent dynamics merely replicate. In his book, Constructing the Self, Constructing America, Philip Cushman writes about how, in early modern Europe, humans were undergoing a radical shift from spiritual beings containing souls held in the hand of God to individuals containing minds 
which were, quote, dependent upon the domination of reason and will over the wild emotions of the body. Cushman writes that as the capitalist economy was emerging, of course incapable of doing so without the forces of domination and control, the mind, which was the instrument of domination, was becoming closer to synonymous with the self. Because capitalism relies on a mass of people who value individuality and personal independence, the population needed to feel personal freedom. And for that reason, self-domination, as opposed to domination by lords or religious authorities or armies, would rise in prevalence, a conditioning towards self-policing that would keep people in check. Self-domination required humans to understand themselves as, quote, possessing a mental apparatus that was rational, private, and located inside each individual's brain, end quote. Coercion toward the interests of the ruling class didn't go anywhere. It just got reframed in the conditioning toward personal virtues like self-control and willpower, which mystified its source and political function. If you've been hurt in relationships past, but are very lucky, you will find yourself later in situations like Skeleton Woman did with kind Fisher people who prefer to see you free and are willing to put aside their own convenience to get you there, to sacrifice some, stay focused, work deep into the night. The point I'm hoping to make, though, is that even in the best of circumstances, the fear that it's not safe to be oneself has roots all over. It's rarely, if ever, just an interpersonal problem, and likewise, not only systemic. Knowing this, as you work to develop a greater degree of ease as yourself in the world, might trouble any hopes you had about healing as linear. But I find that it's better not to expect thorny things to be smooth. As I sat more with the image of Skeleton Woman sitting silent as the fisherman untangled her from his net, I was also reading Jill Friedman and Jean Combs' book, Narrative Therapy, The Social Construction of Preferred Realities. As so often happens, I was synchronistically touched by some of their language on the self. This language is relevant to Skeleton Woman because of the way violence often results in the development of a hostile relationship with the self, both for the perpetrator and victim. Skeleton woman wants to be who she is, as we all do, but she fears it too, believes that being who she is will invite danger, as it had long ago with her father. Friedman and Combs are postmodernists, which means they don't believe in the idea of a true or essential self. They argue, quote, different selves come forth in different contexts, and that while no self is truer than any other, it is true that particular presentations of self are preferred by particular people within particular cultures. If you've been hurt, it's fair and understandable and even wise in some instances to consider being who you are a liability. In a world like ours, I cannot in good faith tell you or anyone that it's safe to be who you want to be at all times. It just isn't. What I can say, because I really believe it, is that we are all multitudinous, and as Friedman and Combs point out, what one environment might treat preferentially, another context might be hostile or rejecting to. So I wonder if it's helpful to think that while it will never be safe to be ourselves in all places, we can seek places that are warm to the selves we most want to be. Some ways of being are going to be more unsafe in more places, 
And it's worth naming this because naming can strike a match that sparks action, which may be a small ripple in a changing tide. Other ways only feel unsafe because we don't forget that long ago we were tossed out to sea for them. Part of being human, I think, is learning to continually ask how likely it is that what happened before is going to happen again now. That if not, are we open to learning to move differently? And if so, are we able to move elsewhere? And I think that when the answer to that latter question is no, that's when we have a systemic problem and where our collective work is cut out for us. You're listening to The Offering for August 13th, 2022. Weekly offerings are generally for paid subscribers, but this one was for all. As always, if you feel moved to share it, please do. And if you'd like to support these offerings with a financial contribution or be on the list to receive them weekly in both text and audio format, you can upgrade your subscription at the subscribe button below. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The theme song is called Evaporate, and you can listen to that and more of Lee's music at the links in this post or wherever you stream music. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.